Good morning, church. All right, yeah, good to see you. If you're a guest or visitor, or glad you're here with us this morning. Hey, I want to jump off and just tell you right away about one of my, my favorite Easter memories. And it's actually not a memory of hunting Easter eggs as a child. It's a memory of hunting Easter eggs as a college kid. Uh, you see, in my house, the home I grew up in, the, the Easter egg hunt was a major event. My family tradition was that my parents would provide this extremely challenging Easter egg find for my brother and I. And just to give you an idea of, of, of sort of the tenor of this, of this moment, my parents would do things like hide eggs inside the zippers of the couch cushions. Um, uh, they would hide eggs not just in the pantry, they would put eggs inside cereal boxes buried down deep inside the cereal, which sometimes made for an interesting bowl of Wheaties later in the week. Um, one year, and this is probably the best spot they ever came up with, uh, my mom used to make these loaves of homemade bread. Remember those, remember when like the bread maker things, those big giant bread makers used to sit on your countertop, those were like in vogue. My mom had one of those, she made bread all the time, so we always had these big loaves of bread. One year, my dad took one of these giant loaves of bread out of the bag that it was in, he very carefully sliced it in half, hollowed out a space in the center of the loaf, put an egg in, put the loaf back together and then rubber banded it with a bread colored rubber band and then put it back in the bag, zip tied it on the counter. It took a while to find that one and this sort of just gives you a sense um, of how crazy my parents were and um, how little the focus on Jesus was in our home. No, I'm kidding. That's not true. (laughs) Sorry, mom, when you listen to the podcast. Uh, Anyway, uh, well, as time kind of wore on, uh, it started off as a really fun, engaged event, but as my brother and I got older, we became less and less interested in the egg hunt, and we would, you know, kind of search for a while and look in the normal routine spots, but then as as older kids, we preferred just to settle into the family room where the candy and treats were available, you know, without labor and for free, and my dad, and my dad, who was a huge fan of the Easter egg hunt, did not like this. And so one year, hoping to regain the lost intensity of the event and set things right once more, my dad tried something new. On this particular year, my freshman year in college, he informed my brother and I that there were no real eggs hidden around the home this year. And that instead, he had replaced the real eggs with these little plastic eggs. You know the little plastic ones that sort of break open in the middle and there's a little piece of plastic that holds it? Yeah, those. So he'd taken a bunch of these plastic eggs and inside every plastic egg hidden around the home, there was money. (laughs) Some eggs contained $1, some eggs contained $5, others contained $10, and there were even a couple eggs out there with $20 bills inside. Now you can imagine that this upped the intensity of the egg hunt quite a bit. At the onset, we were told that there was something like 80 potential dollars to be found out there. And when my dad said go, my brother and I tore through that house with like such intensity and fervor that you would have thought the winning lotto ticket was at stake. And, and my dad loved it. He loved watching his sons compete and push and shove and fight and thrash the house in the name of risen Christ. Um... And actually, you know what I, what I really think my dad loved most about that year, he only did that one year, but what I think he loved most about that year is that, is that he actually possessed the ability and the might and the strength and the power 
to redirect this event that had gotten off track and make it once again what God originally, at least in his mind, intended it to be. And, and when you stop and think about it for a minute, isn't that a satisfying feeling? I mean, it is, right? Putting things right, setting things straight, having the power, having the ability, having the, the, the strength to make things the way we believe and feel and know deep in our hearts they ought to be. I, I believe this is actually one of the greatest needs of the human race, this need for power. And, and I'm not talking about evil, maniacal, corruptive sort of power. I'm talking about the ability. I'm talking about the power to affect change in the world and in our lives when we can see that change is needed. I'm talking about the ability to make things the way we think they should be. And one of the frustrations, I believe, of our fallen world is that we so often lack this. We, we so often don't have the ability. We, we so often do not possess the power to make things the way we know deep in our souls that they ought to be. We, we experience this all the time in, in big and in small ways. All you have to do is, is pick up a newspaper and you can see this on a global level. Even with all the technology and resources available to us in the 21st century, we still cannot cure cancer or prevent war or stop prejudice There are are still untold millions living in poverty, abuse, corruption, injustice, injustice, constantly plague us. They're just rampant in our society. Even with the best of human thinking, even with the best efforts of the smartest people and the most powerful governments, we don't even seem to be making a dent. In fact, often I just think things are getting worse, not better, in spite of... Of all our efforts. And then then we take it kind of down from this global human perspective all the way down to a very close personal look. You see, most of us, we really have good intentions for the kind of lives that we want to lead. We, We know the kind of people that we want to be. We understand the kind of friendships that we desire, the kind of achievements that we are looking for. We We can picture in our minds the kind of marriage that we so want to have. And yet far too often, when it comes to the things that we long for, we fall short. I mean, when we're really honest and we really stop and look, so often we fall short of what we truly desire. Life just has this way, doesn't it, of showing us that try as we might, In our own strength and by our own power, we cannot fully become the people we sense in our hearts that we were created and are supposed to be. You ever have that feeling? And and as soon as maybe we start to feel confident and fool ourselves into thinking that maybe we're making some progress, maybe we do have some ability and control, and maybe we do have enough power to become this person that I've longed to become, as soon as we start to think that in our hearts... Something reminds us ever so clearly just how powerless we truly are. This thing is called children. John Orberg tells the story of this guy who was a speaker and he used to go around 
giving this parenting talk. And this was before he had any kids of his own. And at this point, he called his talk, addressing other parents, the Ten Commandments for Raising Perfect Children. And then he had a child of his own. And he changed the title of his talk to Ten Hints for Parents. And then he and his wife had another child and he changed the talk to A Few Tentative Suggestions for Fellow Strugglers. And then they had a third and the talk became How to Survive as a Parent. Here's the point. We, we all have these dreams, we have these ideals, we have these thoughts and plans, and they are often quite good, but many times they do not turn out the way that we hope that they will. And even when they do, even when everything in a moment or in a snapshot or in a season seems to go according to plan, even when we find that through our own achievement and effort and accomplishment by our own power, we can kind of sort of start to create fulfillment and satisfaction for our souls the way that we've longed to even when life starts to move in that positive direction we find that it's short-lived and that it's thin and fleeting the summer between my freshman and sophomore years in high school i went away for a week to fca sports camp and every day at camp we had a chapel session where all the the young guys would gather for for a chapel and one day the speaker at chapel was a guy by the name of Reggie White and now for those of you who don't know Reggie was an NFL all pro defensive end who at that time played for the Philadelphia Eagles and I'll never forget when I first saw him I was sitting towards the back of this of this theater this old theater where we held chapel and I was about three seats in off the aisle and all of a sudden in walks the most enormous human being I have ever seen in my entire life. I mean, this guy was huge. And I'm a pretty big dude. Um, I think his legs were as big as my entire body. Just like tree trunks, the muscle mass on those, unbelievable. And he went like sauntering, thundering down the aisle towards the front. And you could just sort of feel the room gasp and all the attention turned towards him. And then he got up and he began to speak. And and they didn't call him the minister of defense for nothing because the guy could really talk. And what he talked about that day, though, wasn't strength, it was weakness. He talked about how he had everything this world had to offer. He talked about how by his own power and through his own strength, he had achieved all that the world said would make him happy and fulfilled and joyful and satisfied. He talked about having success in all-pro in the NFL. He talked about having money more than he could have ever imagined growing up. He grew up extremely poor. He talked about having fame. He said there wasn't any place he couldn't go where people didn't notice him and ask him for his autograph and treat him somewhat like royalty. He talked about women and all that came with being a professional athlete. And then he said, even with all that stuff, even with everything this world has to offer... He still felt empty inside. His soul, even though it was supposed to be, was still not satisfied. And and what he came to discover was this. The only thing that could bring him ultimate peace and hope and joy and purpose and true lasting meaning in life was the power of God offered to him freely in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he said, young men, some of you are chasing after something that will not satisfy your souls. You see, friends, 
while all the other powers of this world will fall short, the power of God, the power of Jesus displayed on that day, on Resurrection Sunday, it will never let you down. See, a couple of thousand years ago, something happened that had never happened before. A few broken-hearted people went to the tomb of a man they loved, a man who had just recently died, a man who they saw crucified. And when they arrived at that place where he was buried, they were told that he was no longer there, that they were told that the tomb was empty. And friends, that one single fact, that single piece of news was so significant, not just because Jesus was no longer dead, It wasn't just a miracle. It wasn't just an event. It wasn't just a really cool trick or a joyous occasion. That news was so significant and mattered so deeply because Jesus had defeated sin and death. It was evidence that he had conquered. The greatest opponent of the human race, had squared off with Jesus, given him everything it could throw at him, and he had not only taken it, he had not only willingly endured its wrath, he had not only hung on the cross in pain and shame and humiliation, but he had won. He defeated. He conquered. And now, friends, because of that victory... Everything that once held power over this world, this creation, all of humanity, you and me, it's now been defeated. And as as the earliest followers of Jesus began to understand this, as they started to peel the layers off of what this event meant for their lives, they began to embrace the realization that the power that raised Jesus from the dead could now be theirs as well. The power that that resurrected Christ from the grave, they could also experience it for themselves. This amazing, conquering, life-giving, death-defeating power was now available, is still available to everyday, average, ordinary people just like you and me. The message of Easter Sunday is this. In Christ, you are powerless no more. In Christ, that which frustrates you and defeats you and holds you down, shalt do it any longer. And friends, this is the good news that the Bible has longed for people to embrace for centuries now. In fact, in in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul, who's one of these first century Christ followers who experienced the resurrection of power uh, of Jesus for himself, he writes to a group of people in the city of Ephesus. And in this this section of his letter, he says, I am praying for you. I'm praying that you will know. I am praying that you will understand. I am praying that you will experience. And he says this, his, and that's God's, God's incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Another translation says it this way. I want you to know about the great and mighty power that God has for us followers. It is the same wonderful power he used when he raised Christ from death. So what Paul is saying here is this. He's asking this question. Do you know the power that's available to you? 
And in this statement, he is, he's actually so excited about this power. He's so fired up. He, he longs for them to grasp how enormous this power is so much that he, in this one statement, uses four different words for power. Four synonyms that all describe the kind and strength of power that rose Jesus from the dead that is now available to you and me. The first word he uses is, is this little word, um, dunamis. Dunamis. It's the Greek word from which we get our English word dynamic. Dunamis is, is power that's dynamic. It's, it's on the move. It is not dead or stagnant or still. It is going places. It is, it is, it's like, it's cruising out, rippling out across, uh, across history and over time. And then the next word he uses is the word energeia, another Greek word where we get our English word energy from. And that's fitting because this word describes an operating, exerting, impact-causing power. It's, it's the kind of power that makes a difference. You ever touch an electric fence? That kind of power makes a difference. It has an impact, doesn't it? And what he's saying here is, is that this isn't just power that, that is. It's power that does. It's power that changes. It's power that jolts. Maybe not quite in the same way as an electric fence. But. And then he, and he uses the, the word iskus. And this is a, a supplied or ability-giving power. It's power that's transferred. It's transferable. It can go from this source to this source, from this person to this person. It's like when my wife and I go out on a date and I say to my children, Children, your mother and I will no longer be here. But the same power and authority that I have in your lives, I have now transferred to said babysitter. And so when she tells you to jump, you will say, how high? And when she tells you to bed, you will go to bed, you will say, yes, ma'am, right? And that always works perfectly in my home. We never have any issues there. <laughs> Nevertheless, the idea is that this is a transferable power. And then the final word Paul uses is the Greek word kratos. All these words in this one little, little package, this one little phrase. Um, kratos is actually the ultimate power. It's power over everything. It is power that cannot be defeated. And so by using these four words, what Paul is saying, what the scriptures tell us, is that the power that raised Christ from the dead, that is available to you and me, it's a power that is on the move. It's a power that, that makes a difference, that will change and transform everything it encounters. It's, it's transferable. It's, it's available to you. And finally, it is like no other power this world has ever seen, and it can and will not be defeated. And in fact, in Romans chapter 8, there's sort of a rhetorical question that's asked. And the scriptures ask, if God is for us, who can be against us? Like, and, and the idea here is, if you've got the resurrection power, is there anything more powerful in this world? Is there anything that can come against you or defeat you or conquer you? If you have God, if you have his power, if you have resurrection in your life? And then he lists all the things that people are sometimes tempted to believe are more powerful than the resurrection of power of God in their lives. And he starts with this one. He starts with life. Is life more powerful than resurrection? Sometimes we're tempted to believe it is, aren't we? Has ever happened to you? Life ever get you down? Life ever feel overwhelming or just too big or too strong? Does life ever just feel like it's too much? The Bible says it is not too much for resurrection. It is not too much for Jesus. And then he moves on to the next big one, death. 
Death, friends, is the ultimate expression of human weakness and helplessness. We all face it. It looms at the end for every one of us and there is nothing, absolutely nothing we can do to stop it. And many of you have experienced this. You've experienced the death of a friend or a loved one. And, and when it happens, it feels so wrong. It, it feels, and we do things to sort of soften the blow or make it seem palatable and we use phrases that, that, that make it less abrasive in our lives. And yet, if you've been through this, you know there is something deep in you that says, this is not how things are supposed to be. You ever lose someone and you feel, this is not how it's supposed to be. Paul says, if you have resurrection power, not even death can defeat you. Not even death will have the last word. Nothing in this world is greater. Not life, not death, not trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, angels, demons, any powers. Stuff in the present, stuff in the future, height, depth, anything in all creation. Friends, in other words, this world may throw a lot of stuff at you. This life may get really challenging at times. But if you know the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, there is nothing in this entire universe that you can't conquer in Him. And that's why we celebrate on this day. That's why Easter is such a day of victory. Because the victory has been won and the victory has been given. So how do you get it? How do you receive it? How do you take hold of this resurrection that... that that God offers. Well, let's go back to our verse in Ephesians. Paul tells us with with four little words, four of the most powerful words, he says, this resurrection power is available for us who believe. That's who it's for, for us who believe. I mean, just, just highlight, just circle those words in your brain. How do you experience the resurrection power? You believe in the one who was raised. And the, and the idea here isn't, and, I, and, I, and listen, because so many people get tripped up here. The idea here is not that you simply mentally agree or, or acknowledge or cognitively comply with a statement or a doctrine or a truth. No, the idea, the scriptural idea around belief in Christ is that we trust Him, that we rely on Him, that we depend on Him, that we decide to follow Him at the very center of the gospel, the good news of Easter is this call, this challenge, this offer. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Acknowledge that you can't make it on your own. That your own power won't cut it. That no matter who you are or what you've been through, you are in desperate need of some power beyond yourself. And friends, this is often... It sounds so simple, doesn't it? And yet it is often a very difficult thing. Very hard for many of us. Because what it requires is that we give up control. It requires us to open our hands and say, I can't change me. Not, not, not I can't change you, or I can't change them, or I can't change society, or I can't change the world. I can't even change me. I can't fix me. I can't make myself the way I know I should be, try as I might, so I am going to have to let God do it. You see, 
Trusting Jesus sounds so easy, but in all actuality, it can be very hard and and very scary. And and releasing control and letting go of the old me can actually be quite painful. Because part of the Easter message, part of the Easter story, is that rising with Christ involves dying to self. You see, there's this empty tomb that we celebrate today, but just before that tomb, just before it's empty and the stone is rolled away, there's a cross. There's this scene in one of C.S. Lewis's Narnia books I just love, and and I hope this scene becomes a reality for every single one of us in this room this Easter. This scene that he writes is about what it means to stop relying on our own power. It's, it's about what it means to, to turn and trust God, even when turning and trusting God can be very scary and even hurt. This part of Lewis's story centers around this young boy named Eustace. And Eustace, in this scene, has been turned into a dragon. It's kind of a fairy tale story, so stay with me here. Eustace has been turning into a dragon, and him being a dragon is a picture of how sin and fallenness and brokenness, it actually dehumanizes us. It actually takes us away from being who God created and intends us to be. And Eustace is invited, as he is now in this dragon form, he's invited by Aslan, the lion, who's the Christ figure, to bathe in this pool, this pool that can cleanse him and remake him and rebirth him. But first he's told that he must shed his old dragon skin. In other words, he has to repent. He has to confess the truth about who he is and turn away from that. And so Eustace tries to do this. He tries to do this on his own. He tries to peel off that hard, scaly, crusty dragon skin. And and he actually successfully peels a layer off. He, he, He believes that he's done it. But when he does, and just before he's about to jump into the pool, he looks down and he notices that his foot is still just as hard and crusty and scaly as it was before he started. In other words, there is a whole nother layer of dragon skin hiding underneath the first layer. As it turns out, he was only able to scratch off the surface. So Eustace tries again, and again, and again, but the same thing keeps happening over and over and over again, and this creates sadness and frustration and deep despair in Eustace. And then finally, when this young boy is at his wit's end, the lion Aslan, Jesus, says this to him, you'll have to let me do it. You'll have to let me do it. You'll have to let me peel the sin out of your life. And then after these words are spoken, after Aslan, Jesus, makes this offer, this is what Eustace writes. Listen to these words. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab off of a sore place, it hurts like crazy. But there is such satisfaction in seeing it come away. Well, he he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was lying on the grass only ever so much thicker and darker 
and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I would no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I'd turned into a boy again. I'd turned into a boy again. I'd become human, what God intended me to to be from the very beginning once more. Friends, At Easter, God invites us to quit trying to peel the thick, knobbly-looking sin out of our lives and surrender to the fact that only He can do it. So the question for us today is simple, if that's true. Do you believe? Do you believe that you cannot defeat the forces of sin and fallenness in your life on your own and that you need God to help you? Do you believe that? Do you trust Him? Do you depend on Him? Have you put your faith in Him? Or are you still picking at that skin yourself? This morning I'm going to ask that you consider that question real seriously. I'm I'm going to ask that you consider today in a significant way, where do you stand with Jesus? Before we do that, I want to give you a little time to think of it. I want to share a story with someone who has just made this decision. Someone um, who has just begun to let God peel the thick layers of dark, knobbly skin off of her life. This is someone who has just recently said, God, I can't do it. You're going to have to do it for me. Uh, This is Megan and this is her story. Take a look at the screens. My name is Megan. Um... I am 36. I had a rough childhood. When I was six, uh, my neighbors down the street, they were Christian. And so I got into that church. And I was really into it. It was fun. We sang. We worshipped. It was really nice. Um, But the pastor's um, brother had... um, abused me. I had my little Lord's prayer. I used to say that now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep, and then I'd follow it by the Lord's prayer, and then I'd follow it by don't let anything bad happen, to shield around the house. But I had a really bad drug addiction. Um, it started when I was 14. It kind of happened because of the life that I led. It was what I witnessed my mom doing, and that's the way that I grew up. And um, it's what I used to comfort myself. I decided to get clean and sober. I checked myself into a hospital, and I just couldn't handle it anymore. I was looking for any way out. So I contacted um, Fairhaven. Um, Christian homes and um, John came out and interviewed me and told me that I got into the place as soon as I was released from the hospital he'd take me and I went there and he said that he wanted me to attend his church with him and I remember when I walked in here it was just you know when you just know something's right 
and when Pastor Dave was talking and that day that they mentioned baptisms, I knew that's what I wanted to do and I went directly up to him afterwards and I said, I want to be baptized. And that day that I got baptized, I remember looking down and seeing Pastor Dave in the water. The water had like this shimmer on it and when I stepped down into that water and he dipped me down and pulled me back up, that really lit this fire underneath me. It really solidified the fact that I knew I had found the right place to be. I knew that I was doing the right things in my life. I have been clean and sober over 90 days now. I found a great sponsor and I found a good home group that's here at the church to celebrate recovery. I have my kids almost all the time now. I'm happy. My kids love it here. They've never been to church before, but I bring them every every Sunday. And they hold up their hands in worship, and they love the pastor, and they talk about God, and ask questions like, can God hear the talking in your head? And, you know, and, and, and I love God, and I want to see Jesus, and they want to go to Sunday school, and they're so excited about it, and I want to keep that going for them. I don't ever want them to lose it like I did. Sleep. Yeah, that's so, so you girls love the pastor, huh? Well, at least someone does. No, that's good. Hey, this is Megan, and that was her story. That's just a part of her story. And um, it's just the beginning of her story, actually. Uh, she has just kind of come to the place where she has like Eustace laid flat on her back and said, all right, Lord, do this thing for me. I can't do it on my own. We were just talking yesterday and she said she's tried for years to, um, it's fun stuff right there. She's tried for years to, to beat some things in her life, but this is the first time she's tried to do it with the power of God. And, and she's just starting off. She's right at the beginning of this journey and she's right at the beginning of her recovery and she still has a lot of hurdles to jump and she knows that. And, um, we as a church want to be the kind of place where people get surrounded and loved and encouraged and protected and helped forward in this process. And so I thought instead of just showing Megan's story, it would be good to just pray for her and for these girls and for this next stretch of their journey with God. So let's pray for them together real quick and then we'll continue here. Thank you, Father, for this little family right here that is learning to follow you right now and trust you and learning about your goodness and grace. And God, we know that there are struggles ahead and that uh, that even though the victory has been won, there are still battles to fight. And so I just pray right now for Megan, for her mind and heart and her soul, that she would feel God's presence with her, that she would feel your Holy Spirit empowering her and leading her, that she would uh, find grace for when she stumbles and a community of believers to surround her and encourage her forward towards who you want her to be. So, God, continue to work and move and bless, and may you get all the glory, and may it be done in your strength and by your power. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.